0: Alright, well this morning we are going to continue working through Romans chapter number 2 and we're going to continue seeing Paul unpack for his fellow Israelites why they are uh, in need of a Savior. And as we conclude chapter number 2 today and move into chapter number 3, it's important that we continually keep in mind the context in which Paul is writing and the audience who Paul that Paul is writing to. Uh, Paul is not addressing Gentiles in this passage, uh, so for the majority of us this morning, Paul uh, Paul's not talking uh, about us or to us. Uh, If you're a Gentile, Paul isn't directly speaking to you. Uh, Now, we know that all Scripture is uh, for our learning, and I think there are definitely principles that we can learn and apply as we look at what Paul is saying. Uh, Several of those principles we've looked at the last few weeks, such as the outward form of religion will not save a person. Uh, We've seen how this passage demonstrates for us that nobody's good enough to get to heaven based on their own merits, Nobody's good works will outweigh their bad enough in order to experience the righteousness of God and have eternal life. Uh, But we need to keep in mind who Paul is talking to, and that is his fellow Israelites. Too often times when we read the Bible, uh, our primary focus becomes, well, how does this affect me? Our primary focus becomes, well, how does this apply to me? And certainly we need to consider application from Scripture as we read it. Uh, But it's easy for us to make the scripture about us when often it isn't. It's easier for us to read the Bible with a Western or even an American mindset. And when we do that, we can easily misinterpret what the Bible says because we don't understand the cultural mindset in which it was written. And while this passage may not be about us, it can definitely help us because it can help us better understand the people the Bible was initially written to. Um, Understanding Paul's initial audience is key to understanding what he's saying and why he is saying it. It also helps us understand the mindset of the people who wrote the Bible. The more we understand the Eastern mindset of the people who wrote the Bible and the context that it was written to, uh, the better we will understand the Bible and the Scriptures. Understanding the context in which it was written is vital when it comes to rightly dividing the word or rightly understanding the Bible. And so in order to help us get the context of chapter two, uh, we're going to read the entire chapter, which is one of the main reasons I like to read the entire chapter from the portion of scripture that we're working through every week, because it helps us in a small way get the entire context of what's going on. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter number two, we will read it one final time this morning, Romans chapter number two, I'll read the entire chapter for us, if you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback one, close to you somewhere, feel free to use one of those. As we read Romans chapter number two, the Bible says, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. Now remember, Paul initially addressed uh, Gentiles who were not believers. Now he is addressing his fellow Israelites, demonstrating their need for a savior. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. This is why our, our last th- several messages have been entitled, God Doesn't Have Favorites. The basis for God's judgment is the same. It's based on truth. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? God's judgment. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good see glory, honor, and immortality But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law... Will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, when the Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse them or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, And rely on the law and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. And if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, and instructor to the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say, you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will judge you who are a lawbreaker, in spite of having the spirit of the law and circumcision. For if a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. And then I'm going to continue reading down through verse number 9 of chapter number 3. Paul goes on, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of Some were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Verse 4, absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if your unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how would God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that as we conclude chapter number two and work into chapter number three, that your word would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. And even though we are considering how your people, the Israelites, are in need of a Savior, that, we would, that their need for a Savior would highlight the good news of the gospel. Because the gospel is good news because as verse 9 said, we're all under sin. And so I pray that as we work through the rest of this passage this morning, that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate wondrous things from your word. And that your word would give us strength and life this morning. And I pray that your church would delight in your instruction. And that it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts, so that we could be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bearing fruit to bring you glory. Amen. As we continue to work through chapter number two, and as we conclude chapter number two, we're going to see how... Paul is continuing to help his fellow Israelites understand their need for a Savior. Now this is important because there was perhaps, as we saw in the introduction to the book of Romans, there was perhaps some tension between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers in the church of Rome. Like we saw in our our introduction, uh, the Jewish believers had been exiled from the city of Rome for several years, and they had recently been allowed to come back into the city of Rome And as these Jewish believers came back to the city of Rome, and as they go back to their church, their church would have looked very different and it would have felt very different because their church would have been now very largely just a Gentile church. And as you can maybe understand, their cultural differences, even some of their religious differences, would have been very difficult for these Jewish believers to come back to. It would have looked different and it would have felt different. And so there would have been some perhaps tension between the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church of Rome. Now, like we said in the introduction, I don't think there was any division in the church because when Paul would write to a church with division, he would very plainly call out that division, and he doesn't do that in Romans, but he does address the differences between Jews and Gentiles throughout the book. And often those differences and those tensions uh, throughout the New Testament would lead to difficulties such as Jewish believers adding elements of the law onto Gentile believers. And circumcision was a big one, and that's why Paul addresses it here. So in order to help this, Paul thoroughly unpacks the reality that both Jews and Gentiles are equally in need of the righteousness of God and both receive it the same way. To help alleviate these tensions, he goes right to the heart of the faith and says, hey, look, Jew and Gentile both equally need a Savior both Jew and Gentile experience and receive the righteousness of God the same way, by grace through faith. In chapter number four, he uses Abraham as as an example to unpack this in great lengths. Last week, we saw how simply having the law was not enough. Paul said, just because you've heard the law doesn't intrinsically mean you have the righteousness of God, because Gentiles also have a law. They may not have had the law, but they had a law. They had their consciences, and if obeying a law sometimes was good enough then they're just as good as you but it's not he says one must perfectly fulfill the law and of course only Jesus can do that now as we move through chapter two Paul is going to demonstrate how circumcision will not save you two weeks ago I shared a quote um, that was attributed to Rabbi Trifo and he said they who are of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, shall share in the eternal kingdom. This week I was listening to an audio commentary by a man named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. How many of you are glad you don't have that last name? Um He is a Messianic Jew, which means he is a Jewish person who still observes many of the cultural and religious observations of the Jewish people, but believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he said that Jewish or Pharisaical teachings would echo what Rabbi Trifo said. That if you were a Jewish person by descent or if you were circumcised, it didn't matter how you believed or whether or not you believed in God, you automatically had access into the eternal kingdom. Circumcision became a badge of Jewish identity And it was thought to be a guarantee of salvation. So if you're physically circumcised as a Jew, you'd be granted entrance into the eternal kingdom. And that's all that was necessary. And as we have seen, some later rabbis even taught that Abraham sat at the entrance of hell and would not permit any circumcised Jew to enter solely on the basis that they were circumcised. By implication, the way you lived made no difference. Uh, But what Arnold Fruchtenbaum would go on to or went on to say, he also talked about how when Christian Jews began coming on the scene, this became a problem for the Pharisaical Jews. They didn't know what to do. They didn't want to say these Christian believing Jews had entrance into the eternal kingdom. So they changed their teaching a little bit and they began teaching that if you believed Jesus was the Messiah, an angel would uncircumcise you after you died and you would be denied entrance into the eternal kingdom. This is why Paul deals with this topic so often in his epistles. Oftentimes, when we're reading these epistles now, as Americans in Western society, we're like, man, why is Paul always harping on circumcision? This is awkward. But understanding the cultural uh, context of what was going on and what Jewish people would teach and the length they would go to to ostracize believers in Jesus, even though they were fellow Jews, it makes sense why Paul often addresses this so much. There was a lot of cultural pressure that these Jewish believers were facing. And circumcision became this dividing line among the fellow Jews. Now, as Paul is going to unpack for us, what they taught about circumcision was never the case in the Old Testament. Circumcision was a sign and a seal of the covenant that God made with Israel. We see this in Exodus chapter 12. It was an act that went all the way back to Abraham and the covenant that God made with him in Genesis 17. Under the old covenant, God formed his people by familial descent into a distinct ethnic group. That means the family of Abraham, as they grew, they became the distinct ethnic group. Those were the people of God. Physical circumcision was meant to be a reminder that they were ethnically set apart, but that their hearts still needed to be changed. It was meant to be a reminder of how they would be cut off from God's people if they disobeyed the covenant. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. The physical act was never meant to be enough on its own. It was always meant to be a reminder, not what would actually save them. That's why Paul says in verse 25, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Paul says it's beneficial if you can perfectly obey the law, but if you can't, it's pointless, it's useless. And as we saw Paul establish last week, all of us are lawbreakers. None of us can observe the law. So it's, it's, it's pointless now. Following this logic, he says in verses 26 and 27, so if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? If he's following the law, the point is actually being made, he says. The, the The idea, the spirit of the law is being fulfilled. He goes on to say, a man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you, who are a lawbreaker, in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. Now it's important to keep in mind that Paul is here. he's speaking hypothetically. No one can keep the law's requirements. But what he is saying is, If theoretically an uncircumcised person kept or fulfilled the law, the fact that they were uncircumcised wouldn't matter. They fulfilled the law. They kept the law. They met the righteousness of God. They met God's standard. Whether or not they were circumcised is irrelevant. The obedient but uncircumcised Gentiles, he says, would reveal the guilt of a disobedient but circumcised Jew. That's what Paul means when he says they would judge you, they would reveal your guilt. Their obedience would reveal your disobedience. So Paul is using this hypothetical situation to reveal that keeping the letter of the law outwardly would not change their hearts. Keeping the letter of the law outwardly, keeping up the facade, the religious appearance, would not change your heart. That wasn't how you experienced the righteousness of God. He's helping his fellow Jews understand that just because they were circumcised did not mean they had the righteousness of God. He's helping confront this false teaching that was spreading amongst his fellow Israelites. An obedient Gentile with no circumcision would be more acceptable than a disobedient Jew with circumcision. In fact, a disobedient Jew turns his circumcision into uncircumcision, he says, in God's sight, because God looks at the heart. That's why he goes on to say in verses 28 and 29, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, not the letter. The Spirit is the one that changes you, not observing the letter of the law. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Now, Paul is not saying that every believer, regardless of their ethnicity, is now considered a spiritually Jewish person. I've heard people say that. Well, I'm, an, I'm, part, I'm, I'm a citizen of Israel now because I'm a Christian. And they'll point to this passage of Scripture to verify that. But that's not what Paul is saying. Remember, Paul is speaking to Jewish people in these verses. He's not specifically addressing Gentiles. He's addressing his fellow Israelites. The contrast that Paul is making in verses 28 and 29 is not between Jew and Gentile, but between a spiritual Jew and Jews who do not trust in God. Paul is telling his fellow Jews that to truly be a Jewish person, to truly follow God the way you as a Jewish person proclaim you are, your heart needs to be changed or set apart by the Holy Spirit. They can't simply rely on the fact that they're circumcised. That's not good enough, Paul says. Abraham was a man of faith who was accepted by God long before he was circumcised. Again, Paul's going to unpack that in greater length in chapter number 4. He says a true Jew is one who has a change of heart, spiritual circumcision, he calls it, the heart that trusts in God. Warren Wiersbe said, the tragedy is that the Jews depended on this physical mark instead of the spiritual reality that it represented. A true Jew is one who had an inward spiritual experience in the heart, not merely an outward physical operation. Now, as Paul closes out chapter 2, he does this unique play on words here that we might initially miss. Look at the last part of verse 29. It's the last sentence in the chapter. He says, that person's praise, the person who has the changed heart, the Jewish person who ha- whose heart's been changed by the Holy Spirit. As a part of the people of God, their heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. That person, he says, their person, that person's praise is not from people but from God. Now, the word Jew the true spiritual Jew he's talking about to his fellow Israelites. The word Jew comes from the word Judah, which means praise. The Jews would often praise each other for their obedience to the law and the way that they appeared religious. They would often praise each other, and they would often conform outwardly to the law for man's praise. Pharisees loved it. That's why they would make such big shows about their prayers and the way they dress and everything, because they loved the praise of man. The Jews would praise each other for their obedience to the law, but the important thing is the praise of God, not the praise of man. So when you call, recall that the name Jew comes from Judah, which means praise, this statement takes on a whole new meaning. Paul is telling his fellow Israelites that true Judaism is of God, not man. Your outward performance that garners the praise of man does not equate to righteousness of God. True Judaism, he says, gets its praise from God because it receives his righteousness by faith. Now, as we move into chapter 3, Paul is going to answer objections that he anticipates his fellow Jews might have. He has just kind of messed up their whole worldview here. (laughs) He's really kind of thrown the proverbial stick of dynamite into everything that that they believe, and he's anticipating objections. And so moving into chapter number 3, he's going to answer those. One of the objections would have been, if a sinful Jew... And a sinful Gentile are both on the same level as far as the wrath of God and the way of salvation are concerned. Are there any advantages to being of Jewish descent? It would seem that Paul is saying no, but Paul is going to briefly clarify this at the beginning of chapter 3. And he does so much more fully later on in chapter number 9. But let's reread verses 1 through 9. So we have just seen that a person is not a Jew outwardly, but inwardly. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, so what advantage does the Jew have? He's proposing a question. He's uh, He's asking for his listeners the objection they might have. Or what is the benefit of circumcision? If being physically circumcised and being of Jewish descent isn't what intrinsically gets me the righteousness of God, what's the advantage? Is there an advantage? He goes on to say it's considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's promises? Now let's just pause right there and acknowledge many say yes. But Paul says absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if, you're, but if our unrighteousness, the people of Israel's unrighteousness, highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? Paul says, now just to be clear, I'm using a human argument. Paul saying, I'm speaking hypothetically, I'm playing devil's advocate here, I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath because of our unfaithfulness, because of our unrighteousness? Absolutely not, he says. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? Paul's asking the hypothetical question, if God uses my lie, my sin to bring him glory, why is God still judging me? Isn't this working out in his favor? Why am I also still being judged a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Paul says their condemnation is deserved. So is there an advantage? Yes. What then, he says in verses 8 and 9, are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greek are all under sin. So Paul is actually addressing several uh, potential objections in these verses. The first objective is what advantage does the Jewish person have? Now he says there are still advantages even though they do not concern the way of salvation. And the first one that he brings out is mainly they were entrusted with the very words of God. God gave the Jewish people his law. And as we have seen several times so far, the law and the prophets did foretell, they did outline the way of salvation. It was by faith in God, not by external conformity to the law. God also gave them his word through the prophets. No other people group in the world had such an advantage. No other group in the world had direct access to the word of God the way the nation of Israel did. They were given the very words of God and God used the nation of Israel. God used the Jewish people to preserve the words of God for us. They kept it through rigorous oral traditions and scribes would meticulously copy the scripture to ensure its preservation. Albert Barnes said, no people ever guarded a sacred trust or deposit with more fidelity than the Jews did the sacred scriptures. No higher favor can be confirmed on a people than to be put in possession of the sacred scriptures. And this fact should excite us to gratitude. Our Bible was written by Jewish people. They were the very first people to have the word of God. So somebody might hear Paul's statement that he made in chapter two and say, Well, what's, what advantage do we then have? And Paul says, Look, we were entrusted with the very words of God. They had knowledge of God purposes for humanity through the scriptures. In this sense, they were the bearers of God's promises. They were the keepers of the oracles of God. This reality, the reality that they were entrusted with the very words of God gave them a huge advantage. They had access to God's plan. They had access to God's promises. They should have known that this was, this was the way that it was going to go. Then as we move into verse number 3, Paul presents another objection that someone might ask. So if they were entrusted with the word of God, if they were given the promises of God, if they knew what God's plan was and they were unfaithful with it, didn't Jewish unbelief in the oracles, in the word of God that they were given, didn't Jewish unbelief cancel out the promises given by God? If we were entrusted with the word of God but were unfaithful, will that nullify God's faithfulness? Will that nullify God's promises? Will that undo the promises that God made to the nation of Israel as a distinct people group? Promises that still have yet to be filled. Promises that will still one day come true for the nation of Israel. Well, Paul makes it very clear, absolutely not. A Jewish person listening to Paul may think, if we had this advantage and were found to be unfaithful, will that cancel out? Will that nullify God's promises that God made to us as a people? One might think yes, but God says Uh, or Paul says, absolutely not. This is the strongest Greek phrase for saying no that there is. There's no stronger way Paul could say no than what he says here in the Greek. Some translations say, may it never be. And he says it twice in this passage. Absolutely not. He says, let God be true even though everyone is a liar. Everybody could be found unfaithful. Everybody could be found a liar. But what God says will happen. God will be true. God's promises will come to fruition. Paul says that the unfaithfulness of Israel will only prove God's faithfulness even more. Paul is saying God's faithfulness to us as a nation, as a distinct people group, will not be nullified because of our unfaithfulness. God is 100% right in what he says. And to help illustrate this, Paul quotes Psalm 51. That's why he says in verse 4, as it is written. Whenever you see in the New Testament the phrase as it is written, that's a clue that they're about to quote the Old Testament. As it's written, as it's written, that you may be justified, talking about God, that God may be justified in his words and triumph when he judges. He's quoting Psalm 51 verse 4. If you're familiar with Psalm 51, this is David's prayer of confession after he has been caught in his adultery with Bathsheba. 51.4 of Psalm says, against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So, this is what Paul is quoting, you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. After King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan for his sin uh, with Bathsheba, the whole incident, it wasn't just adultery, it was murder and it was lies and it was this whole big cover-up. David confessed in Psalm 51 verse 4 that God is justified in his judgments. He's saying God is true. The judgment God is passing is right. God's word is true. David's saying, let God be true, for it would be against his infinitely perfect nature to be otherwise. God can be nothing but true. And so as David receives this sentence from God, he says, God, you're right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. Nobody can contradict your word, God. What you say, God, is right. It is true. Paul quotes the revered King David to help his fellow Jews understand his point. He is reinforcing, he reinforces what he's teachings with writings that they rightly viewed as sacred, understanding who Paul was writing to. He's writing to his fellow Jewish people, and he knew they revered King David. He knew they revered the psalms, so he quotes the psalms to help them understand. In this psalm, David saw his crime and he trembled before God, but it was fixed in David's mind that God was right. That God will always do what is right. That God's judgment is perfect and blameless and his judgment did not nullify his faithfulness or his promises. And so Paul quotes this to help his fellow Israelites understand when God promises something, it will come to pass. Even King David understood this while he was being judged. God was right. Everybody in the world could be proven to be a liar, but God's word will always come true. Now, moving into verse number five, Paul anticipates yet another objection. He says in verse five, okay, so understand the logic. The nation of Israel has been entrusted with the very words of God, the very promises of God. But if they were unfaithful with that advantage, would that nullify the promises God made to them? No, their unfaithfulness only highlighted God's faithfulness. Now, the next objection would be, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? Paul says, I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? So a Jewish person might be thinking, if our unfaithfulness to the advantage we are given in the words of God only highlights God's righteousness, why are we still being judged? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Paul, here, he uses that phrase again. (laughs) Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? You have to understand, he's going back and forth between the objection and answering the objection. It's a little bit hard to follow, but he's speaking hypothetically, and then he'll answer his question. And then he'll speak hypothetically again, and then he'll answer his question again. And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, so there were people who were saying this about Paul. There were people who were saying Paul was teaching... Let's do what's evil so that good may come of it. It's okay for unfaithful because God's going to make it all right in the end. It doesn't matter. Paul is saying they're slanderous. That claim is so false. He's saying their condemnation is deserved. Paul anticipates that one of his fellow Jews might be tempted to think if our unfaithfulness only enhances God's faithfulness, how can God, how can God judge us? I mean, aren't we doing him a favor? That doesn't seem right. If God gets the glory, glory through my lie, why am I being judged a sinner? If God is shown to be right in the right by man's sin or error, then God is honored by our shortcomings. This is the logic that these people are presenting to argue with Paul. How then can God punish us when we have helped display his righteousness? And Paul's answer is very simple because you deserve it, because <laughs> it's unrighteous, because it's wrong. Paul answered that as a matter of principle, God's judgment of sin is always righteous. That's why he was quoting what David said. God's judgment of sin is always righteous. People who think otherwise deserve condemnation. Because that reveals their focus is not on glorifying God, but on getting free reign to sin. (laughs) Getting free reign to do whatever their sinful desires lead them to do. God cannot allow anyone to have license to sin under any circumstances. If God didn't judge sin just because good came out of it, Paul says God couldn't judge any sin. <laughs> just because God can take a mess that we make and use it for his glory doesn't excuse us for making the mess. God's still going to judge the mess. Sin is wrong regardless of the good that may come out of it. And in the specific context that Paul is dealing with here, he's dealing with Jewish unbelief. They might say, "Well, it was fine we didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah if Now the whole world gets access to it. What's the big deal? Paul is saying this because you're still in unbelief. You're still in sin. Now, Paul is briefly mentioning all this here. And like we said, he's unpacking for his fellow Jewish people why they need a Savior. And he's going to unpack it and further demonstrate God's faithfulness and righteousness to the Jewish people later in chapter number 9. What he's doing here at the beginning is helping them understand their need for a Savior. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, he goes to great lengths to help them understand how God will yet be faithful. How God will yet fulfill his promises. He gets to the good news specifically for the nation of Israel later. But right now, he's helping them understand, like, look, your unbelief is earning you the wrath of God. You cannot justify your unbelief because God is using it for his glory. It's still unbelief. The condemnation is still deserved. And so, in conclusion this morning, are there advantages to being of Jewish descent? Well, the answer is an emphatic yes. But those advantages don't change the reality of God's wrath or the way of salvation. But there are advantages. You can read several Old Testament prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled and several New Testament prophecies that have yet to be filled. And it is very obvious that God is not done with the nation of Israel. God still has plans for his people. specifically the ethnic people of Israel. God still has a plan for them. There is still an advantage. There are still promises waiting to be fulfilled that God will fulfill because God's word is always true. Those advantages don't change the reality of God's wrath of the way of salvation. But the reality Paul is grappling with here in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 is are they any better off for having those advantages? And the answer is a sobering no. 3.9, what then, are we any better off? Paul says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Even those who were given the very words of God still needed to be saved. Just because they were given the word of God did not automatically equate the righteousness of God. Just like with Abraham, there had to be faith that believed. Like we saw earlier in chapter 2, that faith, that belief, that's demonstrated by a changed life. That saving faith that radically transforms the way you live. That is the way to be saved. And so just because you've been given these advantages does not mean you've automatically experienced the righteousness of God. Faith in God is the way to experience the righteousness of God. Not a physical descent or outward conformity or the appearance of a religion. And as Paul says in verse 9, both Jews and Greeks, all of us, we're all under sin. And the solution? Jesus. Faith in the righteousness of God that's only available because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Believing that Jesus is Lord and Savior is the way to experience righteousness of God. Believing that because of my sin, I fall short, as we're going to see later in chapter 3. Believing that I am under sin and because of my sin, I deserve The wrath of god we saw that in chapters one and in chapters number two that we deserve the wrath of god believing that because of my sin i deserve god's righteous wrath i deserve god's righteous punishment but because jesus came and lived a perfect life jesus came and fulfilled the law jesus came and met god's standard and when i put my faith and trust in him he gives me access to his righteousness when i believe that god punished jesus for my sin and i place my faith and trust in him i'm then given his righteousness that I can be restored back to God. And when you place your faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, as Paul is going to unpack for us in chapter 4 and 5, we are given the righteousness of God.